0: A friend recommended that I reach out to Dr. Heather Clydesdale um, and ask about her adventures and potentially interview her on the podcast. So I reached out and she replied saying, I have had adventures in China. My research of third century tombs in the far west of China takes me to remote places, some epic landscapes and deep underground to multi-chambered tombs, some with bats and mummies. So I needed to find out more, and you're going to hear the results of these fascinating adventures in today's conversation. Having a good no idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, a junior here at Santa Clara. And just a few quick words before we get into the conversation about today's guest. So Dr. Clydesdale got a PhD in archaeology and art history from Columbia, and she teaches several courses with interesting titles. One is China on the Silk Roads, another art making China modern, about 19th through 21st century art and politics, And finally, Fabricating Nature, which is about philosophy, painting, and landscape design in China, Korea, and Japan. In this conversation, we dive into Dr. Clydesdale's adventures across China and, more recently, India. Um, We talk about what Americans can learn from Eastern cultures and philosophies, and Dr. Clydesdale speaks uh, Chinese, so we get into the value of learning another language and kind of the perspective shift that that can give you Um, and we talk about how Chinese and American culture can be complementary and how to balance tradition and innovation. So I definitely could have spent hours talking with Dr. Clydesdale but you get the best of our conversation in this 30-minute chat. So here we go, enjoy. What were those adventures?
1: Well, um, yeah, China adventures can kind of keep you keep you going for life with the stories. Um, I started out taking Chinese as a college student and then I went for a year to Beijing University which was one year after the Tiananmen massacre and um, so I was there for a whole year and of course back in those days we could only make very uh, crackly phone calls that were planned back home or we'd send long letters that sometimes would make it sometimes would not sometimes we'd get care packages with the wrappers of things that our parents had sent to us, um, but the M&Ms or whatever, taken out. <laughs> um, so it was a year where I was really on my on my own in Beijing and at the university. Um, so I would take off with a roommate. She was there the first semester. We would go every weekend. She was very intrepid, um, different places. So we went and we climbed Taishan, um, which is a, a very tall sacred mountain at 7,000 steps up. And we climbed it at night. Um, And then we went one time to um, Inner Mongolia was our plan for National Day. And two of the guys, um, American guys, asked to come with us, one of whom was from New Jersey and had never left New Jersey. And we told him he could, but he couldn't bring his hair gel or his cologne. Um, which of course he, he did we found them on the trip but um, so we went to Inner Mongolia we got on the wrong train our Chinese was terrible at the time and we got on the wrong train and we were headed for the border like leaving China and so people had us get off at the last stop before hitting the border to Outer Mongolia and we, we thought we'd stay there so we found a place that would accept foreigners and um, then as we started going through the town, everyone knew like that we were there. They're like, oh, you're the foreigners that just arrived. And and they said, aren't you coming to the wedding? And we thought, like, well, okay, yeah, we'll come to the wedding. So we went to the wedding um, around noon that day. I think we'd arrived at 6 in the morning. And by noon, we were at a wedding, seated at the groom's table, um, drinking baijiu, which is the – very very strong chinese alcohol as well as mangu cha the yak's milk tea which comes in large bowls and um, at that time i didn't realize that the etiquette is if you if you don't want more of something you don't finish it and i thought i needed to be polite so i finished a whole bowl of this yak's milk tea which subsequently i've come to love but at the time i did not appreciate and i set down my bowl and then next thing I know it's filled up to the top again so okay I'll drink this one too and I think I went through three bowls before I finally could not do it any longer um so that was a great great experience it was really really fun um and then on the way back we had kind of the opposite end of the pendulum we got um arrested in a town It didn't Foreigners were not supposed to um, be there. There was closed towns and open towns, and um, it, we were supposed to change trains, but it was a closed town, so we were um, kind of put under this house arrest in the in the train station and uh, escorted with armed guard um, to put us on the train back to. Beijing um so that was the first like really fun big adventure I had later that year I went way down to I had a month by myself everyone else was going back to the states um either permanently or for the break and I didn't I didn't have money to do that so I went backpacking down in Yunnan province um which borders Vietnam and Laos and Tibet and that was really cool and then um after that when I went to grad school I got interested in tombs way out in the west part of china up in the northwest in a place called gansu province and so that's the western end of the great wall i think there was what i hear was a fairly bad movie with matt damon that featured it but it it probably had a lot of that same landscape i should i should watch that movie um and so that's where my the core of my research is i've been out further um china extends on a very long way after that to the province of xinjiang which is um, most of the people there are Muslim, Uyghurs, um, and it goes out to Pakistan, and I've been out to the border of Pakistan, but um, most of my research focuses on Gansu province, so that's where the tombs and the mummies come come in.
0: <laughs> gotcha. So, so the first adventure part was when you were in college, yeah. under, undergraduate, uh-huh. and then... Did that, like, well, what did you think you wanted to do with your career at that point in your life or, or after visiting or studying in China?
1: I knew I wanted, I mean, that was the day where everyone was taking the humanities and you didn't have to decide so early or you didn't have to be so um, um, kind of transactional about taking business or marketing degrees. Um, so I, I loved art history and I. Um, I I loved my Chinese classes. I mean, after my experience in China, I really had to think, and I think everyone who studies Chinese comes to that point, um, where you either are going to work very hard to be mediocre, or you're going to give it up. You just, you you don't excel at it when you start at 18 in the way you might have excelled at Italian or something else. Um, so you, I think most people give it up. <laughs> they mm-hmm. just realize it's, it's too much of an investment. And I think it was one of the first things that i really loved that i wasn't naturally good at that's not to say i was naturally good at so many things i would just gravitate towards the things i was naturally good at and would quickly give up the things i wasn't and i think chinese was the thing that i um committed to in a way that it was interesting enough to me the language um the way it makes me see something from a completely different perspective that it was worth the the Pain of learning it, and the long hours of sitting down and struggling through translations, or struggling with pronunciation—that um, kind of that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, that's you know, you, you hear all kinds of research about how like learning new languages can help you. Uh, it's good for your brain. Can help you see right. things from new perspectives. So, like, what? I don't know. Can, can you think of any like examples or maybe expand on that idea of seeing things from different perspectives because like for example a lot of a lot of people study maybe like Spanish or something in California right which is useful but maybe maybe Chinese there's a bigger perspective shift just because of how different
1: yeah it is. I have a lot of, of personal things or things where I see something maybe politically or um, socially um, there's there's different examples one can see it from a different way but maybe one of the most one of the ones that I'm most interested in now, and that I formed a, a, it didn't necessarily center the whole class. It was a big part of the class, and it it was definitely my impetus for starting the class. I taught a class in winter quarter called Fabricating Nature, and it was looking at um, philosophy in East Asia, so China, Korea, and Japan, which are all very distinct and have very distinct uh, takes on these philosophies. There's certain certain commonalities and a lot of differences. The impetus for it was looking at neo-confucianism and um which is a really vibrant system of thought it definitely was um the seminal philosophy in china from well confucianism was from um the year about 200 bce and then neo-confucianism comes up about 1100 um, ce so it's been a very organizing force and then it influences Korea and Japan in different ways. They have their own take on it. But um, it has this view of nature as being um, much more powerful than people, but people are a part of it. You're embedded within the natural forces, but it also gives people a great sense of agency. You're not just at the whims of these um, fluctuations of nature. When people act in a moral way or virtuously, um, you can bring the cosmic forces into alignment as society will prosper. And I think this is a really interesting idea, especially today. It can sometimes dissolve into a little bit of hocus-pocus where, um, you know, if there's earthquakes, the government gets blamed. Um, but these days, with Fracking, maybe the government should be responsible for some earthquakes or things like climate change, um, or the the fires in Santa Rosa. You know, were where permits given? What's building taking place where it shouldn't have been? Were people, um, you know, were their evacuation plans set in place? Those are all government responsibilities. And so this idea that chaos can ensue in the environment if um, everyone is not doing their role at every level of society, I think resonates today. And that's why I wanted to. Teach that that course and uh, think about philosophies like Taoism, Buddhism, uh, Shintoism, and how that um, how they can be applicable and resonate in today's world.
0: Yeah, yeah. Are, are there any other examples you can think of of things that people in the United States could learn from these Eastern philosophies or traditions or countries that you've been to and studied?
1: There's a lot to learn, actually. With China, I feel like there's a natural it's kind of cool. The Chinese culture and American culture is um, very complementary in a way. I find, at least for what it's brought to my life, but I also think on a larger level. For instance, China has this, you know, five thousand years of history. It's the um, its language system is the longest one in continuous use in the world, um, and uh, this kind of longest continuous civilization. Um, so there's, there's a strong emphasis on tradition, and American culture is all about disruption and change and everything new all the time. And I think that putting those together, you actually see that looking back to tradition, and I feel so strongly about this, looking back to history, looking back to tradition, is what can make you creative. It's very hard to be creative in a vacuum. You're usually just flailing, and maybe your ideas are not that good. But when you have 5,000 years of history to draw upon, whether that's... Um, Anything as simple as writing a Chinese character, you have to follow the stroke order. It does take a lot of discipline. And both my kids learn Chinese from a very young age, but I would really struggle with them with their homework and um, make them do their characters according to the the stroke order and not just any way they want it. But there's a, a certain... Um, power that comes from drawing upon and connecting with 5,000 years of writing when you do the character the right way. That's a great feeling of power. Um, I also think when one is thinking about Personal liberty versus uh, more social responsibility. You can have a, a really interesting way of approaching those issues if you're taking both a standard American view and a traditional Chinese view, if there is one, um, to to the table on that.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so you. You're in you're in graduate school, you develop this interest in um some of the what well, went well, with the art history of of China. So kind of what were the next what were the next steps for you? What were the types of things you were thinking about at that point in your life?
1: Well, I was um I went to New York for grad school. I'd never visited New York before and I didn't know anybody there, but I got into Columbia and um once again I didn't really have the money to go check it out beforehand, so I just went and it was really great. I loved being in the city. I really loved New York City and I was there for seven years. I met my husband there. Um, So I left graduate school. The um, professors at Columbia, it can be kind of a dog eat dog world, that's for sure. But um, in East Asian art history, the Japanese art history professor and Chinese art history professor um, really brought that whole group together. My friends from graduate school are still some of my closest friends. And um, the professors, the relationship with them was really great um and so i i really loved graduate school but then one of my of my my advisors left right as i was um getting right after i finished my oral exams and was getting into my dissertation and i think maybe i'd gone to graduate school right from college and it was like too much i i did I just suddenly felt overwhelmed by the dissertation. And I went to go work at Asia Society doing educational projects and multimedia projects, which was really cool. Um, So that was in New York. And then my husband and I kind of got tired of the rat race in New York and um, I was pregnant. And so we moved to Portland, Oregon, and I spent a long time being a stay at home mom. And then I, Really regretted giving up the uh, dissertation, so I I asked Columbia if I could come, you know, like come back remotely and finish it. And um, for some, it had been a very long time. I won't even tell you how long it had been because it was that long. Um, but they they for some reason they agreed and let me like I, everyone in the department had to sign off of it. The dean had to sign off on it, and they told me I had um, like a little over a year, and I had to go. My advisor was like, you know. Can you, you have to go back to China and spend a month and see what's new in archaeological excavations there. And I said, no problem. And they said, you know, he said, how's your Chinese? I said, I've kept up with my Chinese. It's fine. And so, um, partially because my kids have been learning it I've been translating all their textbooks for other parents at the school. So, um, yeah, I, I went, I went back, um, and and i'd been back a few times to these remote places actually taking my children each when they were 10 separately i have two kids and so each when they were 10 they did a school trip and then i would take them out to these remote areas and show them buddhist caves or tombs or whatever we'd go one one child that took um, horse camping up in the mountains uh, that bordered tibet so i went back and um, that's why i went into i'd been to some of these tombs before but i went into a lot more the the trick in China there's a couple of tricks one to getting into things is you don't make arrangements very far in advance like and you get someone to introduce you so one professor asked someone who was very well connected to help me and she emailed she had great connections she emailed everybody and said she's coming and the other thing that helped is that my name, Heather Clydesdale, obviously you cannot translate into Chinese at all, and it would sound terrible if you tried. Um, so long ago, a teacher had given me a very traditional name, it's Kui It's it's like jade coral it's it's a very classic name it's doesn't sound at all foreign or derived and so you know when you sign that everything and you write your letters in chinese everyone thinks you're chinese and then you show up and it's it's too late to say no (laughs) because you're there so um and then the procedure is there's a there's a very different power dynamic which when you ask like what is what is trying to give you a new perspective on the states i think a lot of these power dynamics are the same in the states but we think they're different we think that power is the person standing the person talking it's not the power is the person who moves the least and who speaks the least Mm -hmm. and so i get taken into whoever the director of the archaeological institute or the museum i get shown into the office when i arrived and um the protocol is you just sit and you don't say anything until he says something or asks you and it's a test. They might write their papers, they might do different things. There's a lot of silence. And I just sort of sit in a meditative way and wait for them to, uh, with my body language kind of closed, um, which is polite, not not taking up a lot of space in the way an American would, not making sudden movements. Um, and you you wait for them to um, decide and a lot of it's silent and a lot of it is a test to see can you are you disciplined are you going to be an embarrassment as an American and then eventually they sigh and say okay you know do you want to see the the ceramics and the paintings in storage like what do you want to see and like I want to see everything and they reach for the phone and they bring someone up and you're in yeah Mm -hmm. or they you know get a car and then you're off to the tombs and they're opening up the doors and going down and it all kind of works out when i was in china the first time um, in 1991, there was a saying that um, people would say all the time. They say "mei Fa which means there's no way to do something. When someone says "mei Fa it really means it's bureaucratically or because of weather, like circumstances bound their control. And later, I would always use it with my kids. You know, they'd be begging for something. I'm like, "mei banta," this is no way, and it's end mm-hmm. of discussion. But then in China, the conversation changed with a ling. Language changed later in the 90s. Everyone's like, you find a way. Mm -hmm. And so I love China. There's this attitude of something will work out. And it definitely does. Hmm.
0: Yeah. You said in in the middle there, uh, the person who has power is the person who moves the least and speaks the least. So kind of what do you mean by that? Or do you see that playing out in the difference between cultures?
1: Actually, I see that in the States all the time. If you think of... People will. There's an assumption, and even someone was was talking about professors. Well, think about it. The power dynamic. We're up in front of the students. We're we're moving. We're talking, um, and I'm thinking that's not the person necessarily in, in power. I mean, that dynamic makes sense. You're you're supposed to be imparting the information. It gives a certain um, centeredness to the discussion, or, or you know you can get through things. But um, true power, and if you think of movies where someone's super powerful, so let's think. Um, The Godfather and you have Marlon Brando right says very little and when he says it it's laconic it's soft and everybody listens to him Mm -hmm. Um, another one I can think of is um, um, Meryl Streep in Devil Wears Prada Mm -hmm. right she's always calm she speaks the least she doesn't move like other people circulate around her Mm -hmm. when there is true power it's um, the person who who doesn't have to show it off and other people kind of do the bidding. Hmm. I think that does hold in the United States. I'll stand by that.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, and then, uh, was it last year as well that you took another, uh, journey with while you were at Santa Clara to what India? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Do you want to maybe talk about that on like, what was that for? And what were, and what were some of your adventures? Yeah. There? India
1: was really great. It was the first time I'd been, and I was invited some people read my dissertation, I don't know why. And so they wanted to put together a panel based on these early tombs um, in third and fourth century out in what's called the Hosi Corridor, this area of Western China where the end of the Great Wall is. And so um, we put together this panel, and I um, received money from Santa Clara to go. So um, it was a bunch of scholars from Some were Chinese scholars, but based in the US, and the other ones were Chinese scholars based in China. So people from the Luchun Art Academy, um, from Fudan Fudan University, from Hong Kong University. And we all stayed at this hotel together, um, and then we did the conference, and then we traveled together to Mathura, which is where a lot of the um, old Buddhist sculptures are, and I teach those for the Silk Roads class that I teach. And so it was great. There were so many of them. I'd always, I'd always thought that there was not so many Mithraeum statues, and that's in fact what I would tell my students because they are not well published in the United States, which is different than not having them. And this whole museum had tons and tons of them, um, and then. We went to go see the Taj Mahal, which was really gorgeous and stunning. And then I split off from the group. I had less time than everybody. I had a commitment back in the States. Um, They were going to take a longer time traveling around and go see these um, Buddhist caves at Ajanta. I'm still sore I couldn't go with them. Um, But I decided I had enough time to go see the great stupa at Sanchi, which I also teach in the Silk Roads class and which. Um, I discovered I had been teaching all wrong. I thought one circumambulated just around the stupa, but it turns out that um, you you can walk just around the stupa, but there's also rampways, and then you come up and you can see all of the sculptures that are on these kind of portals around the stupa. You can really get such a good view of them, and it's a uh, physically, you know, you physically transcend the actual world and it gives you a new state of consciousness you see these images and then as you come back down your consciousness is still elevated it was really phenomenal to to see that i highly recommend going to Sanchi. it was a beautiful it was next to the city you go into is called bhopal which is famous for an enormous chemicals spill that was disastrous um but in, in i think it was the 1980s but it was a really lovely city uh these big beautiful lakes and very vibrant i i wish i had more time in bhopal
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I will actually be in India about one month from today. Oh, really? So, uh,
1: where Where are you going?
0: Bangalore. yeah. Oh, that yeah. should yeah. So be I awesome. I should have some time to travel to other places there as well. It so, just,
1: yeah. I mean, I barely scratched the surface. It is so vibrant. Um, maybe what could say uh, India and Japan have, have been really. Interesting and being able to modernize with their culture alongside mm. and embedded within that, so it's just so interwoven. It's it's great. Yeah, Dude, yeah. I Like it. What's taking you there?
0: I'm doing a, a fellowship with the Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship, so I'll be kind of working with a the company there and doing a project. Super yeah, super cool. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it a lot. And I, I was in Bologna, Italy last fall, um, which was really was really cool to experience. So many different cities and places in Europe, but I'm excited to get, like, more of a cultural, different perspective as well. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when you are going into a culture that's uh, so different from uh, the United States, like China or, or India, I guess, like, what, what advice or what mindsets would you want to give to someone who's going to gonna travel into those places? Like what's the best way to both like experience the culture as an outsider? And how, how do you think about those type of things?
1: I think really be polite and be receptive. So observe what are the codes of politeness. You might not, recognizing that there are codes of politeness, that you are both outside of the system or people may assume you're outside of the system, but subtle clues can let them know that you're want to learn about that system, and then you will be introduced to it. So China obviously is a fairly formal place. Um, There's a lot of back and forth and etiquette of guest and host. And what I've really learned um, going through these, these little dances is how much it can ease a relationship. You know what's to be done. It takes away this anxiety about what you're supposed to say, what you're supposed to do. And there's this little reciprocities. And once you make one overture, people know that you understand there's a dance, and you understand maybe one step, then they're very happy to include you and teach you that next step to this back and forth dance. If you say the only dance is the dance, you know, you're you're embarrassing from the beginning. You're embarrassing yourself. You're embarrassing to them. No one wants to deal with you. So um, observe how they do things, even things subtly like um, handing over your business card in China. You want to turn your name towards the other person hand it with two hands or a credit card you know watch how other people hand your card back to you and do the same to them um keep your body closer to you don't have your elbows way out that kind of thing is there's just a different body language and body language almost goes more than physical or than verbal language um yeah and and it does it then you're on your way to really connecting um with people and uh understand too that the rationale if people do tell you no they may have a rationale that they just can't explain because of the language barrier Mm -hmm. like in china you might um, some people i was i was taking friends to go up taishan and we had to get tickets and the um, ticket seller was trying to help me arrange to transfer trains um so that we could get back to tianjin where we were staying on time and there was going to be a small fee for the platform fee for changing and my friends were all going nuts that oh but this is a different price it's a different you know and i was like just hold on there's a rationale and you you have to understand that another time i heard a foreigner arguing with someone it was a very small little hostel near tibet and they were arguing that how come they couldn't go in the room and yet and the person said well someone's having a shower in there and i was like why is someone having a shower in my room like we eat, the room must be taken by someone and they just don't understand that the people who live there like they use they don't have their own showers they use the showers it it makes perfect sense in china like it just makes sense so what doesn't make sense to you don't assume doesn't make sense to them and maybe they just can't explain that to you
0: yeah yeah are there any future adventures you would love to go on or, like it seems I like you've been so many that. places Like. What's next? And what's
1: next? I loved. I went to a place last time in China called Qinghai, which is it's the Qinghai Tibetan Plateau, um, so a very high plateau that it shares with Tibet, and that was really really cool. I want to go back and maybe find a research project um, there. Um, and I was thinking I want to spend more time with uh, Japan as well. Um, so I'm teaching. I wanted to kind of reconnect with Japan, and I decided to teach a course this quarter called from Emaki to manga on storytelling in Japanese art. Um, but yeah, I, 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 kind of maybe want to seek out a project there and I really want to go, I mean, it's hard cause my Japanese is really not very good. Um, you have to learn it for to be a Chinese art historian, but it could definitely use a lot of work. So maybe that would be the project to go back and really work on my Japanese. I would love to, um, spend time in Korea um, but all separate languages Chinese Japanese Korean are all completely separate and um, all very difficult and I do not speak a word of Korean so I don't know that that's gonna happen for me one thing about Chinese is like I said you can spend a lifetime and um, you know can can never totally um, there's always much more to learn it's very humbling
0: yeah yeah. yeah there's a couple shorter questions I like to ask at the end of interviews. So maybe first of all, what piece of advice would you give to a first year student coming into Santa Clara?
1: Um, work on your writing and definitely take every writing, um, assignment as an opportunity to, um, to better your writing because anything in life, you're going to have to learn, you know, your writing skill is going to be the way you present your projects to clients. You present yourself to, um, as a job candidate, um, if you're giving a toast at a wedding, like, mm-hmm. writing skills will come in very, very helpful um, and be really critical of yourself and demand that your professors be critical of you, really, in that in that regard. Um, I think the other thing is take a lot of classes in the humanities. I know they get a bad rap these days or it's seen as being superfluous. But if you look at China's trade war right now, for instance, our trade war with China, um, one would do well to understand what China calls the century of humiliation, which is definitely framing their response. One would do well to understand Xi Jinping, the president of China, his ambitions for the the One one Belt, One Road, and how he positions himself in history. I think he sees himself as a um, as another uh, Hanuti who was an emperor in the second century BCE and who kind of opened up the Silk Road. Mm-hmm. And if you understand these um, analogies or how someone, you know, people in history see themselves in a narrative, whether that's good or bad, whether they're realistic or not, mm-hmm. they have a vision of themselves as playing out a role in this larger historical narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're dealing with them politically or economically, you can uh, you're on much surer footing if you understand how they see themselves within that historical narrative Hmm.
0: yeah that's really interesting and then maybe on a a broader scale if you could send a message to everyone in the united states (laughs) what would you want to say
1: um wow a message to everyone in the united states i'd say the same thing learn learn humanities read and study history Hmm. it will it will um and philosophy, and, and definitely art. My gosh, everyone looks at like images all the time, right? Like on their Instagram and stuff. It'll make your Instagram better if you take an art history course. That's <laughs> what I would tell you. Don't think art history is oh. useless or your Snapchat. It will improve by. Um, by leaps and bounds. <laughs>
0: and it sounds like a new marketing campaign. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you?
1: Oh, one where I'm not working. Lately, I've been working all the time um, with with my kids. Definitely, I had a fun time the other day with my son. He he got asked by two girls to prom, so we oh, went wow. to Men's Warehouse. Then we and he's, you know, he's 16. He's not. Uh-huh. He's not. But anyway, it's it was really fun to go with him and like get him fitted up and see him see himself in this way. It's, it's mm. kind of cute, yeah. Oh. But to really just time with my kids and my husband and my dog, who I neglect way too much. The dog really is is suffering with my work schedule lately. <laughs> yeah.
0: awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this
1: interview. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can go to VoicesOfSantaClara.com to read a partial transcript of this episode, follow on Twitter at VoicesOfSCU, or leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. I'll see you next time.